You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Friday, July 24th, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at NIH and member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, joined Washington Post Live to discuss the U.S.'s response to the pandemic and how the country should prepare as states and local communities decide whether to reopen for the new school year. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Bob Costa, a national political reporter at The Washington Post, and welcome Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the NIH, and he is a member of the president's task force on the pandemic. And as you might have seen, he threw out the first pitch at the opener on Thursday night when the Washington Nationals played his hometown New York Yankees. Dr. Fauci, we appreciate your time. Thank you, Bob. It's good to be with you. So was that a flat curve? (laughs) It went in the wrong direction. Uh, I joked around after and said I used to be a shortstop when I played ball as a young boy, and I thought I was supposed to throw to first base. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're not going to hold it against you, doctor. Here's my first pitch. We're both glad baseball is back, but is it too soon? You know, I don't think so, uh, Bob, if it if it's done carefully. If you look at the protocols that Major League Baseball has put together to protect both the players and other personnel associated with the organization, uh, getting them tested frequently, uh, doing protocols that are really quite safe, as well as having no people in the stands, because when we were discussing uh, how to open up baseball again, I was one of, I'm sure, many people that they consulted with. And one of the things that we said was important is paramount is safety for the players and their families, safety for the personnel, and safety for anyone who might be a spectator. And what they've done, as we did last night, there were no spectators in the stands and the players had followed strict protocol. So I think it can be done. It's a little bit different because there are no spectators in the stands, but I think the United States, which is really craving for some sort of relief from the kinds of restrictions we've been under, would love to see baseball in any form, even if just on television. Dr. Fauci, are you encouraging college football and professional football to return this fall? You know, I, Bob, I, I, it's a co- more complicated issue there. I've obviously uh, had the opportunity to just give some fundamental tenets of public health to the people associated with those organizations who've asked me for advice. It's very difficult to say. You've got to do some real careful type of protocols if you want to get football, which is a, such a, I mean, inherently contact sport, be it at the college or professional level, that I think you'd have to take a look at how they're trying to do it, what the protocols are. I certainly cannot be the judge of that. I could only talk to people about what are the, some of the risks are and what some of the safety procedures must be. You don't seem to be encouraging the idea, though. You know, I don't want to come across, Bob, as encouraging or discouraging it. I'm just trying to be realistic 
about what some of the challenges are going to be. I think if you do a good enough protocol, you probably can do it, but you've got to make sure it's well thought out and the safety of the players and everyone else is paramount in your consideration. Dr. Fauci, when you step back and you look at the data and the map, what's your biggest concern about where the, the U.S. is today? You know, Bob, one of the things that has always concerned me, and we talk about it a lot uh, in the discussions at the Coronavirus Task Force, if you look at the, the, the plotting of the curb for Europe, they went way up. You know, there's multiple different countries in the European Union, but if you look at it as a group, they went way up and then they came back down really to a true baseline of, you know, maybe tens if not hundreds of new cases each day as opposed to thousands and tens of thousands of new cases. The issue with us is that when we shut down, in contrast to the European Union, we shut down about 50% or so in reality, whereas the Europeans shut down about 90 plus percent. So when we went up to our peak as a country, and then we came down, we plateaued at around 20,000 cases a day. And then when we started to see the resurgence in the southern states, we went up to 30, 40, 50, 60, and we even reached 70,000 per day. That's not a good place to be. So my concern is that we have a challenge in front of us, and I hope we can meet the challenge of bringing that baseline way down, almost to a real baseline, so that when we proceed to try and open up the country again, which I think we all should try hard to do, we're starting off from a baseline that's low enough that when we get these blips of cases, we'll be able to more easily contain them rather than have these surges of cases which tend to get out of control easily the way we've seen recently in places like Florida and Texas and California. So, Doctor, if you were entirely in charge of the plan to get us out of this mess you just described, starting now, what would it be? Well, I mean, it would be a, a few things, Bob. It would be first, in, 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 the, in the states that have been trying to open, particularly the southern states which have gotten into trouble, I would say the first thing is you don't necessarily have to go all the way back to a complete shutdown but you certainly have to call a pause and maybe even a backing up a bit. And by backing up for those not familiar with the guidelines is that the guidelines for reopening are you first starting off with a gateway. In other words, you look at where you are and if you have decreases in cases over a period of time, 14 days, you then go to the next step, which is phase one. If you do well in phase one, you go to phase two, et cetera, to phase three. The issue is that some of the states, not all, and I'm not going to name which one, but some have essentially skipped over some of those checkpoints. What my advice would be, time out and maybe go back to a prior checkpoint, and from that point, try to proceed in a very measured, prudent way, according to the guidelines. If we do that, I think we can control the surging that we're seeing in those states. For the other states, I would say, please take a look at the example of what happens 
when you open in a way that might be too quickly. So as you're opening, and everybody should be trying to reopen America again, but do it in a way that's in accordance with the guidelines. And then finally, Bob, I would say there are certain what I call fundamentals that we should be doing almost universally. And that is universal wearing of masks when outdoor. Number two, outdoor better than indoor. Avoid crowds, keep physical distancing, and continue with hand hygiene, such as washing your hands. If we did just that, there have been meta-analysis studies that have shown that you can diminish the transmissibility by a significant amount. So there are some relatively easy things that can be done to help in getting to the goal of where we want to be. Dr. Fauci, let's pause on that final point, universal, universal wearing of face coverings. Should the federal government put some muscle behind that idea and have a mandate, a national mandate, to wear masks? Bob, there's always a lot of debate about that. And the debate is not that we should, should or should not wear masks. The debate is about the concept of a mandate that if you put a mandate in, you have to enforce it. And if you enforce it, what other problems is that going to lead to? So many people feel, rather than making a mandate, really be very explicit about the consistency of your message, that everyone from the top down says you should be wearing masks, and we strongly, strongly urge you to wear masks at all times when you're outside. We got a lot of questions from readers, Dr. Fauci, who were very interested in hearing from you on different fronts. One of them, Candace Gray of Kansas, she asked, do you have any projections about the combination, <clears throat> excuse me, of COVID-19 and the flu during the fall and winter? Well, certainly if we get anything that resembles a typical influenza season, there will be complications and confounding because then you would have, which if we have COVID in the fall and winter, which is likely we will, I hope we have a little bit and not a lot, but almost certainly we'll have some of it, that if you have two co-circulating respiratory diseases, it makes things more complicated. And for that reason, one of the things we can do is to make sure that we get as many people vaccinated for influenza as we possibly can, because that would ultimately help to mitigate against at least one of those two potential recirculating respiratory diseases. So it's going to complicate the situation. And the question that you just read is a very important question. Speaking of vaccinations for low influenza, we live in a time where conspiracies gain traction on social media, and some Americans are wary of vaccines. How will you get people to take what the vaccine, whether it's for the flu or a potential COVID-19 vaccine? Well, uh, yeah, that's a very good question. And it's been very difficult with the anti-science, anti-authority, anti-vaccine uh, movement, if you want to call that, in the United States. I think we need to keep articulating with clear messages and get good community outreach to try and explain to people why it's so important to get vaccinated, not only vaccinated against flu, as we have an influenza vaccine, but when we get the COVID vaccine, 
which I believe we will likely have either by the end of this year or the beginning of 2021, that we need to do enough good, clear community outreach and community engagement to get people to understand why it's important for their own protection, but also to get a degree of herd immunity in the community. Let's go back to the issue of schools. That's on everybody's mind who has families or who have people in in their family who are thinking about going back to school. One of our readers, Kathleen Jill of New York, wonders, quote, if schools open in the fall, would you send your kids into the building? I know your your children are not, no longer school age, but how would you answer that question? Well, you know, it's it, it's not a simple answer to the question because, first of all, uh, let me just say, Bob, that as a broad default position, we should try as best as we possibly can to keep the children in school and to get them back to school when the school season starts. For the reason that I think we're familiar with, that the downstream unintended ripple effect consequences of keeping children out of school and the impact on parents who need to take care of them on the psychological issues with the children, we should try that. Having said that, when you ask that question, it depends on where you are. We live in a very large country that is geographically and demographically diverse and certainly different in the extent to which there's COVID virus activity. So if you live in a county or a place where there's very little activity, there may be nothing much you need to do but just send the children back to school. If you're in an area where there is viral activity, you want to look at what the schools can do and their planning. And the CDC now is coming out, has come out with some really explicit guidelines of the kind of things you need to do to protect the health and the safety of the children. Because that absolutely needs to be paramount. The safety and the welfare of the children and of the teachers who are taking care and teaching the children. So some schools are gonna be doing things, separating desks, alternating schedules, hybrid schedules of online versus in class, alternating days, morning, afternoon, wearing masks in children who are old enough to be able to tolerate wearing a mask. So there's a lot of things to do. I would go with the recommendations of the school district in which I'm in. So I live in Washington, D.C. My children went to school when they were children. They're adults now in Washington, D.C. I would take a look at what's being recommended at the level of where I'm living. Do you fully support the CDC's guidance? Yeah, I do. I think the CDC has put some good guidance down. I just took a quick look at them before I started into the program, which was sent to me by my colleagues at the CDC. So I think it's a sound set of guidelines. What are the facts, Dr. Fauci, about children under 10 as spreaders? Secretary DeVos, Secretary of Education, recently said, quote, more studies show that kids are actually stoppers of the disease. Is that true? You know, I'm not going to either agree with or, or disagree right, with But what someone. are the facts? What are the facts, yeah, though, on this? I will give you the facts, okay? And the reason is otherwise it gets taken out of context. There was a study that was done, and I think we still need to learn a lot about children, you know, elementary school children, getting infected, what the percentage of their infection is, 
and whether they either spread or not efficiently to adults. A recent study came out that showed children up to 10 years old, it looks like they don't necessarily spread infection as readily as adults do. Whereas children 10 to 19 appear to be spreading infection to adults as equally as well as adults spread to adults. Yet there's still a lot to learn about what the prevalence and incidence of infection is in children. And as a group, do they spread? Do they get antibodies? What's the in-family spread or not? And in that regard, in order to answer that question, Bob, we started a study on May 1st. We'll get some answers by December of this year, a study called HERO study, Human Epidemiology and COVID Virus Infection, looking at 6,000 people and 2,000 families to ask just those questions. How frequently do they get infected? And if they do, do they transmit it to adults? And would they be part of the spread of infection? Because even though we have some information about that, we still need more information. But Dr. Fauci, if we still need more information, how can parents feel comfortable sending their children back to school? Well, you know, sending children back to school, it, the, the parents are fundamentally concerned about whether they are going to get infected in school. And they certainly can get infected. And maybe not very efficient, or it may be very efficient. So the parent's concern, I think, has a little bit different to do from the question you just asked me about when you send them to school, depending upon the level of infection in the community and what the recommendations are. So your questions are related, but they're a little bit different, I think. That's right. And there is a lot of confusion out there. Here's another one from one of our readers about the virus and spread. Brad Ullman of Massachusetts asks, is it true COVID-19 antibodies disappear in as little as three weeks? Again, that's a reasonable question that Brad asked. But again, that's in the arena where we need to get more information. We are only six months into the outbreak. So the total durability of antibodies, which indicates that you've been infected and almost certainly you've recovered from infection. You look at someone who's no longer infected, but they have antibodies, which is an indication that you've been infected and that you likely, almost certainly, are protected at least while you have antibodies against getting reinfected. When they looked at a group of people who were infected either symptomatically or without symptoms, a study showed that there was a great deal of variability in how long the antibodies last. In some individuals, some, it lasted a matter of several weeks. In others, it lasted months. Since we're only six months into it, we don't know how long it lasts in most of the people. But the fact is, as the questioner asked, that there are some people where antibodies only last a relatively short period of time. What we need to know is what that means. When the antibodies are no longer detectable, are there other aspects of the immune response, like T cell or cellular immunity, that could still protect them from reinfection? Again, we're learning as the weeks and months go by, but we don't have all the information that we need. And I think you have to admit that and be humble enough to realize that when you have a process that's evolving 
and you're only six months into it, there are certain things you know for sure, but there are certain things you need to keep an open mind as the weeks and months go by that you will hopefully learn more about. Dr. Fauci, when is then the absolute earliest a vaccine might be widely available to the general public? I think the key word there, Bob, is widely available. I think we will likely know uh, whether a vaccine is safe and effective given the number of phase three trials that are starting literally next week. And there are some in other countries that are already ongoing that we should know by the end of December of this year, the beginning of next year. There are some companies that claim that might be a month or two sooner. I'm a little skeptical about that, but you know anything is possible. But I think it's gonna be towards the end of the year. But the crux of your question is when widely available. It is likely that in the beginning of next year, we would have tens of millions of doses available. The companies who are involved in making these vaccines, many of which the federal government is in deep collaboration with, promise that as we get into 2021, there will be hundreds of millions of doses, and then maybe sometime thereafter billions of doses. So in direct answer to your question, I think as we get into 2021, several months in, that you would have vaccine that would be widely available to people in the United States. Beyond a vaccine, what about treatments? Are there any new treatments that are safe and effective that are in the pipeline soon? Yeah, we have a couple of treatments that have clearly shown to be effective. They have been mostly for people, Bob, with advanced disease. One of them is remdesivir, which is a direct antiviral drug that has shown to, de- to lessen the time to recovery in hospitalized patients who have lung involvement. Another drug called dexamethasone, which is a commonly used steroid, a glucocorticoid, that has been shown in people on ventilators or requiring oxygen, that that drug, when given to those people, diminishes the death rate. It doesn't help people early in disease because you don't want to suppress the immune response early because you need the immune response early. There are a number of drugs in clinical trial right now that are looking at what the effect would be earlier in disease. Those are monoclonal antibodies, namely natural proteins that are produced in large amounts that are very specific against the virus. There's convalescent plasma, namely from people who've recovered. There's hyperimmune globulin, similar to the gamma globulin shots that we used to get. And there are some small molecule direct antivirals. In addition to another things that are going into trial for some of the complications of COVID. So there's a lot of activity in the arena of therapy and it is likely we will get more good results before we see the result of a vaccine, which as I mentioned, should take several months more and up to the end of the year. Dr. Fauci, have the president's briefings this week been helpful or unhelpful? No, I think what is good about this, Bob, that that I'm pleased with is that the president has gone out there and is saying things now that I think important, have to do with wearing masks, uh, crowded, staying away from crowded places, 
So I think that they have been helpful now. And also, they've been short and crisp, which I think is good when you're trying to get a message across. So I think the last, I think it's three times that the president has been out. I think it's important that that continues. Short, crisp, have a defined message that people can understand, such as wearing masks and staying away from crowds. Do you believe the task force and its doctors should be briefing the American public at this critical time? You know, I think so. We should, Bob, and we are. I mean, I'm doing it right now with you. I mean, I welcome this this half an hour that we have of talking about important issues. And members of the task force are getting out there. I would like to get out even more because I think messaging is very important. Are you... Have you sought to join the president at his briefings? No, I'm not so sure that's necessary because what happens when you do that, people ask questions that have a little bit to do with health and it gets mixed up. You know, when you're, whenever you're at a, a, a briefing with the president, people start throwing questions in there that have nothing to do with the issue at hand. So I tend to like to see press briefings that are crisp and to the point. And you're still advising the president from time to time. Is there anything you can tell us about your phone call last week with President Trump? You know, generally, we don't like to talk about the details of the things you tell the president. But I can say that it was a good call and it had a lot to do with encourages, encouraging to do the kinds of things that we're seeing being done right now. So it was a good call. I don't want to get too much into the details. They don't like that when you're talking to the president. But uh, it was a, I, f I found it was a positive call. When you look back at your own counsel to President Trump, do you feel, Dr. Fauci, that you made any mistakes in your own advice to him in terms of responding to the pandemic? You know, Bob, it's very interesting when, when, when you use the word mistake, something that you made a recommendation based on the information that you had at the time which is what you should be doing. You look at the data, you look at the evidence, and you make a, either a recommendation or a policy. When the information changes and you change what you're saying, it's because you're wanting to follow the evidence and the data, and that's the right thing to do. So do you then call that a mistake back then? Well, back then it wasn't a mistake because you were acting on the data you know. When you reevaluate it now, in the context of the data you know now, look at what you're saying now. Don't look at what you're saying now compared to back then. So I guess if you want to call it a mistake back then, then call it a mistake. But I don't look at it that way. I look at recommendations based on data as you know it. And as the data changes, then you change your recommendation. Is there anything in that answer you're referencing in particular? Yeah, I mean, well, for example, uh, the issue that you mentioned early on about masks. I mean, back then, the critical issue was to save the masks for the people who really needed them because it was felt that there was a shortage of masks. Also, we didn't realize at all the extent of asymptomatic spread. And that a person who could be without symptoms at all could be inadvertently and innocently spreading it to someone who was uninfected. When you don't even, you don't even know you're infected because 20 to 40 percent 
of the people who are infected don't even know that they're infected. But what happened is that as the weeks and months came by, two things became clear. One, that there wasn't a shortage of masks. We had plenty of masks and, and, and covering that you could put on that's plain cloth covering. So that took care of that problem. Secondly, we fully realized that there were a lot of people who were asymptomatic who were spreading infection. So it became clear that we absolutely should we be wearing masks consistently. So that was one of the things that I guess you could have said back then was a mistake. The other thing is things that get taken out of context. Like early on when there was either no or maybe one infection, when I said, you know, at this particular moment, we shouldn't be telling the American people to do anything differently. The people who say that's a mistake leave out the second part of my sentence, which was, however, this could change dramatically and quickly, and we need to be ready to respond if, in fact, things change. So I guess the first half of the sentence, if you cut off the second half, was maybe misleading. But the second half really clarified that. So I could go through a number of those, but those are the kind of things I'm talking about. Dr. Fauci, it's 11.59. We have a hard out at noon. One final quick question from our reader, Marlene Zindel of Maryland. Will you retire so you can be more candid? <laughs> no, Bob, I have no intention of requiring. And I think if anything, people think I'm too candid. So I don't know where that question is coming from. But, you know, in some respects, thank you if you think that, because a lot of people think I'm being too candid. Dr. Fauci, thank you for joining us. Good to be with you, Bob. Thank you for having me with you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.